Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now, wouldn't it be great if you had a friend or just a person, maybe even a family friend, somebody so close that that person was always faithful. Wouldn't it be amazing that every time they said something to you, that they would be faithful to keep their word? Every time, without fail. In the little things and in the big things. Whatever they said to you, they would be faithful to you. Well, the reality is, even our most closest friends or even our spouses, uh, close family members, as much as we love them, there is no one, no human being, mere human being, that is always going to be faithful. And so, because of that, we tend to want to have some kind of reassurance somehow from the other person. Sometimes it's knowing that person and generally knowing that person's character and therefore, you know, letting go of the times when they're not faithful. Other times it's just the way they show love and care toward you. And other times it's them actually keeping their word. And in this way we are, again, reassured of our love and care from this person. In fact, if you, if you think about that and you widen that circle out into the world, we find ourselves in a world that is chaotic. You know, tossing and turning and throwing all kinds of things at us. A world that is broken. And so we, to get anything done to, often we need assurances as well. And one of the reasons why something like an insurance uh, is there and other things and contracts and other things are set in place to give us some sort of assurance that this other party will be faithful to what they said they will do. But you know, the wonderful thing is there is one person who is always faithful. And that one person is God himself. He will always be faithful. He will never let you down. Whatever he has said, he will always fulfill his promises. You know, and it it is so important for us to realize that this is who God is. Especially when we know that everyone around us, including the world around us, we can't fully trust to be completely faithful. And so the only one we can ultimately be found to be faithful is our Lord himself. Now this morning we're going to look at a passage that will remind us of just that. 
of how God is just so faithful. Of how we can hold fast to God and his word and his promises and persevere precisely because of who he is and precisely because of his various promises uh, which cannot be broken. Now just by way of thinking through what the author has been saying so far, I just want to remind you of a few things. The author at the beginning uh, of Hebrews has said, now Jesus has come and he is the final word or the final revelation of God. And what that means is he not only brings that final fulfillment, uh, final revelation of God, that final piece of the puzzle, but he's also the one that will accomplish the plan of God in an ultimate way. And we saw that, and part of that is, therefore by trusting in Jesus, we are trusting in the one who will bring our salvation. And this salvation has been described in many different ways, talking about the various promises and this future promises that are going to come, future graces that are going to come. For example, he talked about the fact that Jesus will come once again to establish a new creation. He will renew creation and make it all new. Then in, an, uh, in the following section, he talked about God's purpose for man was to rule and reign over the earth. But we don't see that right now. But because Jesus, he took the form of a man, and because he died and he rose again and he will return again, we can have assurance that Jesus, who has gone before us, will come again and establish a kingdom. And under his rule, all those who trust in Jesus will also rule and reign with him. Again, reinstating the original purpose for which man was created. That's again future. And then he talked about, even with this kingdom, he talked about how this kingdom would be a kingdom that would be full of joy and full of righteousness, where there would be peace in this kingdom. Nations would be at peace. Then later on, he, this is the future kingdom that Jesus is going to establish. Then he talked about it in terms of this eternal rest of God that believers will enter into, that believers who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you could say that all these things are the promises that he's talking about, the future promises, or this future salvation, if you want to talk about, uh, uh, just with one term, that Jesus is going to bring. Now, as he's talking about these future promises that are going to come, he recognizes that, that there's an issue with the Hebrew Christians. And he says, I want to go further and I want to give you more things. But he says, there's a problem with you folk, and it's that you are becoming hard of hearing. You're becoming dull of hearing God's word. You see, the, the culture beneath them was moving and shifting, and persecution was 
becoming stronger for these Hebrew Christians. So they were beginning to falter. And they were tempted to want to abandon Jesus and to go back to Judaism because under Judaism there was no persecution. And so he's saying, dear Christians, you are becoming dull of hearing. You're not listening to God's word. In fact, what's happening, instead of you persevering and moving forward, you're going backwards. And then he says, and the danger with going backwards like this is this. See, people can have a certain experience of knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can show a certain positive response to the gospel. They can be partakers of some of the goodness of the work of the Holy Spirit as they are within the people of God. They can, in in tangible ways, um, experience the goodness of God. And yet, there have been people who have experienced all this and then have fallen away and have rejected God and totally fallen away, and it's impossible for them to come back. And he's really referring to that old generation of Israelites that were lost in the wilderness, who experienced so much of the goodness of God, and even the promises of God, and the good news that they would be delivered and they would enter into the land. And yet, ultimately, they didn't believe. They just hardened their heart and they died in the wilderness. So he's cautioning them, you don't want to be numbered among them. And then he says, as he's cautioning them not to be sluggish, not to go backward, then he sort of encourages them. But then he says, you know, with regards to you, I'm confident. Because you are beloved of God. And because God has loved you, his work is evident in you. And how is that work evident? In that you love others. And so I'm confident God's work that he has already started, he will finish that work in you. So press on, keep on going forward. Don't be sluggish, don't go backwards, keep moving forwards. And so now, in fact, let me just read uh, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6. And so you understand the flow of thought. And we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. What promises? All these future promises that he's been talking about. So he's saying, so keep moving forward. And if you want an example, then follow the examples who've gone before you. Imitate their patient faith and persevere in your faith. Because those are the ones who inherit these promises of God. And now more so, he wants to encourage them and tell them about why they need to have patient faith and continue to persevere. And to do that, he tells them about three things. He really encourages them to persevere, to hold fast to God's promises, and he points to three things about God. 
First, he talks about God's proven faithfulness. That's in verses 13 to 15. Then he talks about God's unchanging character. That's in verses 16 through to 18. And then finally, he talks about God's eternal provision in verses 19 and 20. And in this way, by pointing to these three different things about God, he wants to encourage them even more so to hold fast to the promises of God and to, you know, with patient faith, continue to persevere in the Lord. So let, let's look at these three, three things about God from this chapter. So firstly, God's proven faithfulness. God's proven faithfulness as a motivator to cause us to hold on to God's promises and persevere in patient faith. Look at verses 13 and 14. So now he says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and multiply you. So in order to help his readers understand that God is going to be faithful to keep his promises, and therefore we need to persevere, what the author does is, I want you to just turn back. And I want to point to you a person that you know well. Abraham. And he talks about Abraham and something that happened in the life of Abraham. And why Abraham? Because Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel, so to speak. And really the father of all those who believe. He's called the father of the faith. So he points to the life of Abraham and he talks about something that God has done there. Now we've gone through the life of Abraham when we went through the book of Genesis, but I want to remind you about Abraham's life so we understand what the author is saying here. Abraham, he was a pagan idol worshipper. He wasn't seeking God or anything like that, but God graciously came to him and he called him out. And he told, told Abraham three things, broadly speaking, with regards to land, seed and blessing. He said that he would have many offsprings and that he would become a great nation. That's the promise regarding the seed or the offspring. Then he said that this seed or this, his offspring would inherit a land. That's the promise of land. And then he said, through him, many nations would be blessed. That's the blessing promise. And so Abraham believed God and his word and then he left his country and his kindred and all his family and he followed the direction of God. That was in Genesis 12. By the time we come to Genesis 15, some years have passed. And so Abraham now says, okay, Lord, you know, you've promised me these things, but what, what will you really give me? Because I don't even have one seed. And so then Abraham then points to his loyal servant Eliezer and says, will he be my heir? Will he be my successor and will everything happen through him? And God says, no. 
you yourself will have a son, and he will be your heir, and through him your offspring will be like the stars in the sky, innumerable. So he hears this, but then some time passes, and then in Genesis 16, his wife Sarah is still barren. And listening to Sarah, what he does is he has a child named Ishmael with their servant girl, Hagar. And Hagar's child is called Ishmael. But then the Lord comes to Abraham and says, Ishmael is not the promised heir. In fact, you will have a son through your wife, Sarah. It won't be through anybody else. It will be between you and Sarah that you will have this child. And then finally, in Genesis 21, 25 years have passed since God made that promise to Abraham, that promise of a seed. And by this time, aside from the fact that Sarah is still barren, Sarah is now 90 and Abraham is 100, both of them well beyond the age of having children. It's humanly impossible for both of them to have children. But exactly as God promised, through Abraham and Sarah, in their old age, they have a son and they name him Isaac. Now remember, Abraham had to wait 25 years for the promised seed to be born. That's quite a long time. Now he has his son and his son is growing up in his home and once the child grew up, God says to Abraham, now take your son, your only son, the son that you love and take him to the mountains of Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice to me. I mean, this would have been an unthinkable thing, right? For Abraham. I mean, Lord, but this is my only son. This is my beloved son. On top of that, you promise it is through this son that your promised plan of redemption would move forward. So that means if Isaac dies, God's promised plan of redemption would not go forward. So this would have been a very difficult thing for Abraham to do. Nothing about it would have made any logical sense. Still, Abraham trusts God and obeys God. Why? It's not because Abraham was some extraordinary man, a, you know, a cut above the rest who had this tremendous faith in God because you know, he was such a great man. No, Abraham was just another ordinary person, just like anyone else. In fact, if you remember from the life of Abraham, he sinned many times. He failed many times. He failed to trust God in different situations. But then what is it that made him persevere in the faith? What is it that made him in such a way that, okay, you know what, all these difficulties, I'm done with this. I'm going back to the land of old, back to the idols. What is it that made him not do that and caused him to persevere in the faith? It was because he saw that God was always faithful to him. You see, Abraham understood he was a pagan worshiper. There was nothing special about him. And yet, God graciously 
called him out. God was faithful to him there. Then God gave him these promises when he didn't have to promise him anything. And then God took care of him. And over the years, in spite of the trials and the difficulties, in spite of the uncertainties and the impossibilities, in spite of Abraham's own failures, God had proved himself to be faithful over and over and over again to Abraham. God had proved himself to be good to him and faithful to him. And so, therefore, Abraham persevered and he grew in his faith and he had come to a point where he believed that even if he were to sacrifice his son, that God would raise him up from the dead. In fact, that's what we'll see as we move forward in Hebrews, in Hebrews 11 verse 19. He knew God so well by now. He knew everything about God. And so with this confidence in God, with this confidence that God will be faithful to his word and to his promises, Abraham then takes his son Isaac on top of one of the mountains of, on, in Moriah. And he binds him up and he raises his hand to slaughter his son with a knife and the Lord stops him. And then God provides a substitute ram instead to be slaughtered. God made that provision. And you could say in a figurative sense that Abraham received back his son from the dead. And then from heaven, God reiterates the promise and says the promises back to Abraham. And this time with an oath which is then what is quoted in Hebrews 6.14, where he says, I will surely bless you and multiply you. And then verse 15, Hebrews 6, it says, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now what does it mean that Abraham obtained the promise? Well, obtained the promise of the seed. But in what way? You see, after what happened on Mount Moriah and seeing God's provision of a substitute and then hearing God's promise again from the heavens said once again, and this time with an oath, I will bless you and I will multiply you. What Abraham experientially saw was the reality that nothing would happen to Isaac. And God's promised plan would continue on with Isaac. So in this sense, Abraham obtained the promise that he experientially saw it and he held on to it. That God's promise was totally secure in Isaac and nothing would happen to Isaac. Because God had proved himself and even more so at this point on Mount Moriah. So in this sense, he really obtained the promise and grasped the promise and held on to that fact. Now here's the question. Did Abraham obtain all the promises that God made to him in his lifetime? No. I mean, you think of the Abrahamic covenant, and as I mentioned before, the promises broadly can be categorized into three of the land and seed and blessing. 
And all these three are connected to God's ultimate plan of salvation. The land promise, for example. See, the nation of Israel inheriting a land is connected to the worldwide inheritance of all of God's people in the future. That they will inherit the earth. And it's a microcosm of that. The blessing promise, that's connected back to when God blessed his creation. So that when all the nations, when he says, will be ultimately blessed in the future, it'll be like a blessing of all of creation like it was before the fall. Before the effects of sin and death infected this world, where it'll be a renewed earth with the fruitfulness, with fuller fruitfulness and life and the blessing of God. And the seed promise, well, this seed promise of Israel is really about Israel becoming a great nation, but it's also connected to the ultimate seed, Jesus, who comes from the line of Abraham. And then all the believers from all nations who are the spiritual descendants of this father of faith. So so in a nutshell, you could say the Abrahamic covenant, it's not just for what God will do for Abraham and his people, or in other words, for the nation of Israel. It's about God's plan of redemption for the entire future, which includes all the nations. So now here's what the author is doing. If you notice back in Hebrews 6.12, he talked about those inheriting the promises, plural. And amongst the promises, which is the entire Abrahamic covenant, he's talking about now a promise, singular. In verse 13, the promise of seed, the specific promise of having a son born to Abraham. That one promise is what the author is focusing on. And his point is, if God did exactly as he said, and Abraham received that part of the promise of the Abrahamic covenant, then you can be certain that God will bring about the rest of the Abrahamic covenant promises. In fact, verse 15 again says that Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Again, Abraham had to wait a long time, more than 25 years for the promise to be born. And then another few years for that promise to be secure and to know that nothing will happen to this promise and it'll move on. He patiently waited. And while he patiently waited, there were trials. There were difficulties along the way. There was delay. You know, God's timing was in Abraham's timing. But Abraham waited patiently on the Lord, and the reason he did that was because he understood the faithfulness of God, how God had already been faithful to him. And so what's the author then implying toward us? Well, what he started saying in Hebrews 6.12, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, Imitate the faith and patience of Abraham. 
See, this is not because Abraham was so great that he persevered, but this is because the God that he trusted in was great and he had proven to be faithful to him. I mean, think about why it specifically says patient faith. I, I just want to read to you what one, one theologian said with regards to this. Quote, he says, We're all patient when we have no frustrations. But the very essence of patience is that we are able to cope with and bear the burden and see through the frustrations. We all can think of ourselves as a very patient person as long as God does what God is supposed to do according to our way. See, one of the reasons that God, I mean, there's plenty of reasons. One of the reasons that God delays his promises, he might say something and the fulfillment of that takes a long time, is so that we would learn to trust and grow in him. I mean, think of the promise that he will make us more like Christ, right? And that's a whole lifetime. I mean, nobody becomes spiritually mature and Christ-like overnight. It takes our entire lifetime. But why does he do that? Well, so that we would continue to hold on to him even more and not trust in ourselves. And also to use our lives to show others, look what a faithful God I have as they look at you in the way you are responding, in the way you are changing, in the way you are trusting in God. It points to how faithful God is. That's what he's done with Abraham, and that's what he's saying we are to look at. Look at how great the God of Abraham is, because look at how faithful he ultimately became. Now for those of us, you know, when we are going through difficulties, you know, what are we to look at in this chaotic world to persevere in the faith, to wait patiently on the Lord to fulfill his purposes? What are we to look at? Look at how God has proven his faithfulness to you. I mean, he has called you out, hasn't he? He has called you out by name. Not because you were special. Not because you were a cut above the others. But simply because of his grace. And now you're numbered as one of the spiritual offspring of Abraham that is continuing to grow. And if that's not enough about God's faithfulness, God has sent his ultimate seed, Jesus Christ himself, exactly like he said. And he came into this world as a human being and he died as a substitute for sinful people like you and me. And then he rose up on the third day and is seated on the right hand of the Father, interceding for us and guaranteeing for us our place in heaven. 
And so here's the thing. If these promises God has already proven, then we can trust God with the future promises as well. Because when you really think about it, these future promises that he's been talking about, talking about inheriting the earth, God coming, Jesus coming to establish a kingdom which is fruitful and joyous, and nations being at peace, Jesus making a new creation, and the promise of entering the eternal rest. What is that really? That's all part of the land, seed, blessing promises of the Abrahamic covenant. It's the same thing. And so the author's point is, if God has been faithful in this part, small part of the promise, you can be assured that he will fulfill the entire covenant. All his promises will come to pass. And so, just like Abraham, let us patiently wait on the Lord and persevere in the faith. Now the second thing he wants to encourage us, aside from God's proven faithfulness, is God's unchanging character in verses 16 through to 18. God's unchanging character in verses 16 through to 18. And his whole point is this, because God does not change, when he says he is going to do something, you can be absolutely certain of it. Look at verse 16. He says, for people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an, uh, an oath is final for confirmation. Now, why do people take oaths? Why do they swear oaths? Well, to assure those around that what they're saying is true. See, in ancient times, people would swear oaths by swearing on someone greater than themselves. The lesser swearing on somebody of higher value and higher authority than themselves. Now often it was swearing on God. Uh, and then during the Roman Empire time, often people would also swear on the Roman Emperor. And so while you know, swearing and taking the name, swearing by God or the name of the Emperor, what they're doing is they're saying, this person is my witness to the commitment that I have made. And essentially what they're doing is, and if I fail to follow through what I have committed to, then they can judge me. They can bring whatever the judgment they want on me. That's the point of the oath. You know, in fact, even in law courts, right? I don't know if they do that now here in the Australian courts. But it used to be that when you went into the court of law, the person who was meant to testify something, they would put their hand on the Bible. And they would say, I speak the whole truth, the, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. What are they saying? They're saying, I swear on God and his word because this is the final authority here over me. And if I lie, may God judge me accordingly. One commentator said, to take an oath was to seal one's word with one's very life. Because essentially, if you broke your oath, your very life was at stake. Now, after the incident at Mount Moriah with Abraham, when God reiterated the promise with an oath, 
If you go back to verse 14, it says that God swore an oath by himself since he had no one greater to swear by. God's the greatest being, right? The, the most supreme authority in this entire hu- hu- universe. So it was right for God to swear by himself because there's n- no one else greater than him. Anyone else he would swear by would be a lesser authority of lesser value than him. But you might be thinking, but why? Why did God swear an oath? Well, verse 17 and 18 gives us the answer. So that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. See, God wanted to show more convincingly, not only to Abraham, but also to the heirs of the promise, which includes you and I who are Christians. He wanted to show more convincingly how unchangeable his character is. That if he said he was going to do something, we could be absolutely certain of it. And so once we are certain of his character, it, should, it is meant to cause us to encourage us to hold fast to the certain hope that we have. Now you say, what's the certain hope that we have? It's all these future promises in Christ that he has already been talking about before. That are yet to come. See, he wants us to be certain about God's unchanging character and unchanging purpose. And so he says, there's two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. You say, what are these two unchangeable things? It's the promise and the oath that he's sworn by. They are unchangeable. Why? Because it is impossible for God to lie. You know, I love that. It's not just saying, oh, God is unable to lie. Because if you say God is unable to lie, I suppose you could say that there might be a remote possibility in the future that he might be able to lie. You know, I'm unable to, say, lift this pulpit right now, but perhaps with some help, and if I work out or something and get stronger, I might be able to do it later. But that's not what he's saying here. He says it is impossible for God to lie. It is an impossibility. Because to lie or to sin in any way goes against the very character of God. You know, I remember quite a few years ago, there was a question that was going around. And often even Christians and even unbelievers would ask Christians the same question as well. Sometimes you just trap the person. And the question was this. Is it possible for God to create a rock that he cannot lift? Think about that. Is it possible for God to create a rock that he cannot lift? And it's a bit of a conundrum because if one says yes, then you know, that person would say, oh, so you're saying God cannot make a rock like that. It means that there's something that God can't do. 
And if you say God can make a rock like that, it means that God is then not powerful enough to lift that rock. So you see the conundrum. So what's the answer? Well, the short answer is no. God cannot create a rock that he cannot lift. Why? Because it's an impossibility. You cannot have a rock with infinite weight that cannot be lifted up by infinite power, which is God himself. Because there's nothing in this world that is infinite other than God himself. So anything that's infinite, God is to the highest degree of infinity. And so if this thing is infinite, this rock, then God's power is even more infinite. Now I want you to think of this. You know, there are things that are impossible for God. You know, sometimes when we think God, that means everything is possible. Yes, true. But there are things that are impossible for God. Let me tell you a few things. It is impossible for God to sin. It is impossible for God to tolerate evil of any kind. It is impossible for God to create another absolutely supreme God. It is impossible for God to reject those who come to him by faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, those are just certain impossibilities with God. It is an impossibility for God to do anything that is contrary to his nature. And so it is impossible, absolutely not possible for God to lie because it goes against the very nature of his being. So that's why the promise that he made and the oath that he swore by himself, they are unchangeable. Because think about it. God first makes a promise. That in itself is unchanging. Because it's impossible for God to lie. God has promised something, that will go ahead. God will not lie, so it's unchangeable. He cannot go back on his word. He will not change it in any way. Now if that's not enough, then God swears an oath by his very own name. And that oath also now is unchangeable. Why? Because again, it is impossible for God to lie. He cannot go back on what he has said or what he has sworn by. It's unchanged, two unchangeable realities has happened. And so it's a double assurance that God will keep his word and will not go back on his word. Look, even the fact that God swore on himself because he's the ultimate supreme being, what he's essentially saying is, if I don't do this, I'm no longer God. He's saying, I would rather cease to exist than fail to bless my people and fail to keep my promises to them. I would rather cease to exist as God rather than fail to keep my promises to them and bless them. That's what God is essentially saying by that oath that he's sworn. One commentator said this, Quote, God's oath is an act of grace, not because his word is in doubt, but because we are in doubt. See, that's why he's sworn an oath. It's not because God's word is untrustworthy. It's not because God's word is changeable or his oath is somehow changeable. It's because we are doubtful people. He did it for our benefit. 
So there's a double assurance by his unchangeable promise and his unchangeable oath that he will do exactly as he has promised. Brothers and sisters, I want you to think about this. I mean, this is, this is wonderful encouragement, isn't it? I mean, he's done this just for you and for me, for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus. That we would know his, his love and his kindness and his goodness and his care. That he's, he's gone to this, this, this level to really reassure us his promises will not fail. His word will never fall. He is absolutely for you and he's determined to bless you and his promises that he has given for you and that is future, that will come to pass and he stakes his very existence on it. Brothers and sisters, If this morning you're listening to this and you find yourself with doubting God's goodness and care, is God really for me? I want you to just look at this passage and be assured by this. That God has staked his very existence and has promised and even sworn an oath that he will bless you and the promises that he has told you he will bring to pass. It is totally based on his unchanging character. And so as we understand this, that's another motivator for us to have patient faith and to persevere in this world and trust that God will bring about his purposes. Now lastly, the last encouragement that he wants to give us is God's eternal provision, and that's in verses 19 and 20. Now he says this, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. He's talking about the hope that he's just talked about. And what's the hope? All the future promises. And he's comparing the, the, the hope to uh, an anchor. Now an anchor, as you know, is something that you, you know, put down from a boat. You put it down into the water and it steadies the boat. It helps prevent the boat from drifting away. In fact, sometimes... Uh, particularly in ancient times, and sometimes they do it in modern times too, especially when they didn't have the rudders and things like that. When uh, the seas were very rough, they would actually pull down the anchor, drop down the anchor so as to steady the boat and so that it would not go adrift somewhere else or get capsided. So that was another thing for the anchor that when there was stormy seas too, at times that they would put down the anchor. And so he's bringing this imagery of an anchor. 
this anchor that's meant to steady the boat. And what's the boat? That's those of us who are believers. And this anchor is the promises of God or the, all the future promises that he's been talking about. That's the hope. And then he personifies this. And he says that it's a hope, verse 19 again. First he says it's a sure and steadfast anchor. So it's not a weak anchor. It's a strong and sure anchor. It will not break. It's a steady anchor. And, and then he personifies this hope. And he says it's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now what does he mean by that? Behind the curtain. Well, this is talking about, this is language of the temple. Now, we've talked about this and we'll look at it more in detail as we go on in Hebrews. But in the temple, the most holy place was separated from the common people with this curtain or this veil. And it was in the most holy place that God's presence was manifest. God's presence dwelt. And there was no access to this presence of God. No one could go in there just, just like that. In fact, not even normal priests could go in there. The only person that could go in there was the high priest. And, and the high priest too couldn't go there every week or every day. In fact, the high priest could only go there once a year. He would go there once a year, offer his sacrifice, and if it was acceptable before God's eyes, then he would come out and then he'd have to wait another year till the Day of Atonement to go back in there. So when you think about it, it was not permanent access. It was for a very short time, and the only person who could access it was the high priest. And so here he's saying that this hope has gone into the inner place, behind the curtain. And then he adds in verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what's he saying? See, none of us had access into the presence of God, into the most holy place of God, because God precisely was holy. But then God sent Jesus, the eternal son, became incarnate son, took on flesh, took on human flesh. And he offered himself as a sacrifice for sinful people like you and me. And then he went into, he died in our place for our sins. And then he rose from the grave, conquered sin and death. And then he went into that most holy place into the direct presence of God. And he didn't leave. He's still there. And he will continue to be there for all of eternity. And here's the point that he's trying to make. That now Jesus has made entrance into the very direct presence of God possible. That we have a place in the very kingdom of God, in the very direct presence of God, and this has been made possible through Jesus. 
And it's almost like when he's, you know, he's talking about this picture of this anchor uh, that's gone down, and then finally, which is the hope that is represented. And then it says this hope has gone into the inner place. It's almost like this anchor is now, it's anchored onto Jesus Christ, who is in the very direct presence of God. And so all the promises, all the future promises, this hope uh, is all anchored in Jesus Christ. And it's almost like there's a line that's, that's attached to Jesus. This, it's anchored onto Jesus, and that other line is connected to all believers. And he's saying, that certain is your hope. This is the eternal provision that God has made. Because you're connected to Jesus, this God-man who is in the very direct presence of God, you can be sure that you too will be in the direct presence of God and all the promises are secured in and through Christ and he is tugging you along and pulling you and he will get you to that end when all these promises will become a reality. Isn't that assurance for us? For when in this sin-cursed world and when we go through trials and when we go through difficulties, to know that, yeah, we've been tethered, anchored onto Jesus Christ. And he is there and he will never go from there. A God, man is there in the very direct presence of God. And therefore we can be assured that we too will be there. And all these promises of God, everything that the Abrahamic covenant said, we will inherit the earth. And, and land, a new creation, blessing of creation, of a renewed creation, and all, all nations coming together, that will become a reality because of Jesus himself. And so he says, therefore, continue to persevere in the faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the encouragement of your word. We thank you for the absolute truth of your word. We thank you for your unchanging character. We thank you for your proven faithfulness. And we thank you most of all for our Lord Jesus Christ, who we are anchored onto, who we are tethered onto. And so as we face the storms of life, we can be sure that we won't drift away. We can be sure that we will reach our ultimate destination in the very direct presence of God and all these promises will be realized then. Lord, help us to trust you and to follow Jesus. May these words be not just an encouragement to tickle our ears, but it would, these would be words that we would hang on our lives with and we would truly persevere in the faith until that day when Jesus returns. We ask all these things for his name's sake. Amen.